He is a late 19th century industrialist, a robber baron. He has such insane levels of power, and sometimes he uses them on really vulnerable people and just crushes them like ants. Hey everyone, this is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On this week's Patreon-only episode of 5 to 4, Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael are talking about the Lochner era. That's the period in U.S. history at the beginning of the 20th century, when the Supreme Court aggressively and repeatedly struck down labor laws under the guise of protecting the right to sign a contract. The Lochner era eventually subsided, partially because of FDR's threat to pack the court. But as the current court strikes down worker protections and regulations on corporations, the Lochner era is poised for a comeback. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have clogged up the pipes of justice, like my girlfriend's hair has clogged up my shower drain. <laughs> I'm Peter. <laughs> I'm here with Michael. Hey, everybody. And Rhiannon. That was a good one, Peter. Hi. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Yeah, inspired by true events. <laughs> you know how like, people will often say like the world is built for men? Yeah. Yes. If men had the problem with hair in the drain that women do, <laughs> this would have been solved decades <laughs> That's ago. That's right. Yeah, I'm spending a fortune on Drano. All my podcast money is going to Drano right now. <laughs> All right. Today's episode is about the Lochner era, a period in the early 1900s when the Supreme Court created a constitutional right to contract and used that right to nullify laws protecting workers across the country. We're going to walk you through the origins of the Lochner era the key cases, how it ended, and how the modern court is rebuilding a Frankenstein version of that status quo through a variety of different legal doctrines. Yes. Mm -hmm. So first, to understand the legal regime of the Lochner era, you really need to understand the Gilded Age, uh, the period from about 1870 to 1900. The Gilded Age was this time of rapid industrialization after the Civil War, coinciding with mass immigration primarily into the major cities. Economic growth was significant and wages went up, but most of the economic gains were being captured by the elite, uh, who grew enormously wealthy and powerful during this time. This is when you saw the rise of like all the great American fortunes, right? Carnegie, the Rockefellers, yeah. the Vanderbilts, right. all of these grotesquely wealthy individuals and families. The Inequality and brutal working conditions of this period also led to a growing labor movement. There are massive railroad strikes. Eugene V. Debs and other socialists and union organizers grow in prominence and political power. Uh, there are anarchists committing uh, light acts of aggressive vandalism. Uh, sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, you know, that gives you a sense of the sort of broader political atmosphere and also the specific political milieu that the justices on the Lochner court emerge from um, because they are in the literal sense gilded age elites. That's right. right. Yeah. The majority in Lochner is delivered by Rufus Peckham. It's a real name. Uh, <laughs> who He was a corporate attorney before joining the court. The chief justice was Melville Fuller. Again, not making these up. Uh, a staunch conservative who was like fiercely protective of business and industry interests. They're molded by this era and their socioeconomic position within it. Yeah. 
but we know what happened after that, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. We, we, we know what followed all this is like a disastrous recession. And so I think it's worth keeping in mind, this isn't just bad on its face. It, it's part of a, a historical arc that led to economic ruin right. uh, for the country. Yeah, really good point. So I think we should talk about some of the cases that define the Lochner era. And we can start, I think, with Lochner versus New York. So this case actually isn't the official start of the Lochner era. Lochner, the case came down in 1905. So it's early on in this time period. But I think the language is so clear cut and it comes down at a time where people can say like, oh, they're they're recognizing, right, that like, oh, this is a trend now. This is what the Supreme Court is doing. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So it kind of defines the era. At issue in Lochner was a New York state law called the Bake Shop Act. The law established some minimum standards for sanitation at bakeries, like prohibitions against the housing of animals inside bake shops and against employees sleeping inside the rooms where baking is done. You know, pretty basic stuff. But a key provision of the law was that it also prohibited bakery owners from employing workers more than 10 hours a day and 60 hours a week. So Joseph Lochner owned a bakery in New York, and he was accused of doing just that. He was having his employees come in in the evening and work through the night and early morning hours, which resulted in employees working more than 60 hours a week. So his case goes up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court invalidates this state law regulating working hours at bakeries, and it does so under the guise of this new freedom of contract that they just made up as being protected by the 14th Amendment. Right. So they say that the 14th Amendment under substantive due process, which is, you know, famous for underpinning like Roe v. Wade later on actually protects the freedom of individuals and businesses to contract with one another. And so that's sort of like the heart of Lochner is the freedom to engage in contracts without government interference. And, you know, not to sort of point out the obvious, but when you're talking about the freedom to contract, quote unquote, what you're really talking about is the entrenchment of these like unbalanced power dynamics between labor and management, right, which exist to this day, but of course were even more um, egregiously unbalanced at the time. You know, you're talking about people who are living in destitute poverty in many cases who are forced to work very dangerous jobs if they want to feed themselves and their family. Um, That's the freedom of contract that the court's protecting here. That's exactly right. Yeah. So they say in the case, the majority opinion says a person's, quote, general right to make a contract in relation to his business is part of the liberty of the individual protected by the 14th Amendment. Under that provision, no state can deprive any person of life, liberty or property without due process of law. The right to purchase or to sell labor is part of the liberty protected by this amendment. And they go on. They also say, quote, clean and wholesome bread does not depend upon whether the baker works but 10 hours per day or only 60 hours a week. The Bake Shop (laughs) Act is not a health law, but is an illegal interference with the rights of individuals to make contracts regarding labor upon such terms as they may think best. What the fuck does Rufus Peckham (laughs) know about (laughs) baking bread? Baking bread. (laughs) 
that motherfucker made his money like tying women to railroad tracks and twirling his mustache. His mustache. <laughs> That's right. Um. So, you know, the majority opinion also pretty blatantly says that the law and many other similar state laws weren't being passed with the true motive of promoting health and safety of workers, but were actually intended, were really aimed at redistributing wealth. Very scary. Mm. The redistribution of wealth completely separate from the health and safety of workers. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. So these laws were actually aimed at redistributing wealth and helping workers at the expense of business owners. Can we pause for a second and just like appreciate how unique the American brain worm is? Because like <laughs> there are a lot of aspects of American politics that you can just trace to like the modern era, like the rise of like evangelicals and shit like this. <laughs> sure. But this sort of like freedom to engage in contract shit, you basically see it nowhere else. Right. You know, at least across like the industrialized world except for in places where it originated in America and then like infected their own <laughs> their own <laughs> politics. Yeah. It seems to go back to the founding or at least like the late 1800s. It really is unique. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think that you can probably draw a line to slavery, right? To the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there is something unique about American interpretation of individual liberty, that somehow they wrap up economic rights in that, but it's economic rights of owners and uh, right. bosses, right? Yeah. Now that you mentioned slavery, perhaps these things are related. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so note that in the Lochner case, there are dissenters, right? These are not unanimous opinions, but I think that it's important to point that out because it shows that even at this time, even at the tail end of the Gilded Age, people knew the court was acting crazy, right? Even justices right. on the court were calling this out as judicial activism in favor of their preferred economic theories. So famous dissenter, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, he is one of the dissenters in Lochner, and he wrote that the majority was based on, quote, an economic theory which a large part of the country does not entertain. And he also points out that Quote, a constitution is not intended to embody a particular economic theory, whether paternalism or of laissez-faire. So just highlighting that even people at the time, even politicians and other Supreme Court justices at the time knew that this was bullshit, that the freedom of contract was ridiculous and was simply part of a preferred theory of economics that some elites held at the time. Mm -hmm. Right. So the next case we should cover is Adair v. United States, which is about yellow dog contracts, which are contracts that uh, forbid employees from joining a union. So in 1898, Congress passes this law regulating interstate commerce, created bodies of arbitration to settle labor disputes. And they were concerned with strikes, right, that disrupt commerce and hurt the economy. And they say threaten workers with starvation and blah, blah, blah. And they thought, you know, government-created arbitration could help limit this. Right. One provision of the bill said that uh, employers cannot make it a condition of employment that employees don't join a union, nor can they fire someone or threaten to fire them or discriminate against them for being part of a union. Right, yeah. So this gets challenged when a union organizer gets fired 
and uh, the Supreme Court strikes it down. They say it's unconstitutional under this same sort of theory of economic rights. One line in particular I thought was just like a perfect encapsulation of like the brainworms Peter was talking about is they say, uh, it may be observed in passing that while the section makes it a crime against the United States to unjustly discriminate against an employee of an interstate carrier because of his being a member of a labor organization, it does not make it a crime to unjustly discriminate against an employee of the carrier because of his not being a member of such an organization. Oh, is that what a criminal statute does? It criminalizes some behavior, but not the opposite. This is like reverse racism for labor unions. Reverse racism for labor is the the perfect way to put it. I love the implication that this is a, a potential problem, that employers are getting extremely mad that their employees are not part of a union. Yes. And they're lashing out. It's unbelievable. (laughs) It's unbelievable. (laughs) So they say, look, we have this liberty, since this is a federal law, this is a liberty protected by the Fifth Amendment, not the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, And they say the Due Process Clause protects the freedom to contract, blah, blah, blah. And they say, obviously, the freedom to contract has to be weighed against the public interest. So... We also have to ask whether or not this law is in the public interest, which they, they give a resounding no. <laughs> it is absolutely <laughs> not in <laughs> not in the public interest. They say, how could this possibly be in the public interest to interfere with the freedom of employees to contract with their employers? They also question whether or not this counts as regulating interstate commerce? Because how would labor unions (laughs) intersect with interstate commerce? That's Mm. a mystery uh, the Supreme Court left for the scholars to ponder. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, there's something about the interstate commerce jurisprudence from these times that feels like preposterous. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, the sort of implication is like, a physical coin needs to cross a state border right. for Congress right. to regulate it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I have another case to talk about that. It's like <laughs> the heart of the case. Yeah. So Justice McKenna has an interesting dissent, which I think highlights how much ideology is at work here because he totally buys like the Fifth Amendment protects the right to contract or whatever. But But he points out that like, look, Congress passed an earlier version of this law in 1888. Uh, 10 years prior, and it didn't have any mention of labor unions, labor organizations. And then in 1894, there was a massive strike in Chicago that was hugely disruptive. And so Congress went back to the drawing board, and the new law they passed, the one at issue in this case, doesn't just prohibit retaliation against employees for joining unions. It actively involves the unions in the arbitration process. There would be three arbitrators one chosen by the employer, one chosen by the union, and then a third one chosen by those two arbitrators. And the idea was that bringing labor orgs into this process would give it legitimacy and help promote labor peace, mm-hmm. right? right? Yeah, And create a different avenue for settling disputes than strikes. You'd have this arbitration framework with buy-in from both sides. And so, of course- not firing union people and not discouraging unions makes perfect sense as a part of that scheme, 
right? That overall statutory scheme. Right. And of course, that relates to interstate commerce, right? Like, even if you buy the freedom to contract, this isn't a hard case. Right. right. You have to ignore the purpose of the statute, the structure of the statute, the way the provisions interact, the history leading up to it. Like, you have to ignore everything to get to the conclusion that the, the majority does, which I think goes to show just like how fucking bullshitty this period was. Yeah. Right? Right. Holmes has a dissent, which also, like the one we mentioned, is just like, what are we talking about here? This is yeah. <laughs> this isn't protected right. by the Constitution. <laughs> this is some bullshit. This is some real bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. So moving on, drum roll, please, for a oh, Supreme yeah. Court case that is widely known as one of the worst in modern times. Yeah, yeah. It's child labor, baby. It's Hammer <laughs> v. Dagenhart. Yes. This case comes down in 1918, has to do with an act of Congress which prohibited the sale in interstate commerce of any merchandise that had been made by children either under the age of 14 or by children under 16 who worked more than 60 hours per week. If you want a 15-year-old working, you got to keep it at 55 hours or so, all right? Don't <laughs> get right. crazy. That's right. Yeah, so this is crazy. It was crazy back then, right? We're joking about it. But it's actually not that far off from how lawmakers are talking about things like child labor today. I just saw a tweet that Wisconsin's state Senate has approved a bill allowing 14-year-olds to work as late as 11 p.m., and people in the state Senate in Wisconsin, supporters of the bill, were saying that it could help plug the labor shortage, right? So we're legalizing child labor still rather than increasing the minimum wage, for instance. Yes. <laughs> right. oh, shit. It really is fucked up. Um, so remember, under the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, we've already mentioned a little bit about interstate commerce. Congress is given the power to regulate interstate commerce. So with this power, Congress was attempting to basically prohibit prohibit the use of child labor, right, in the manufacturing of goods that would be sold between states. Historically, the regulation of interstate commerce has been interpreted really broadly, like, you know, interstate commerce encompasses a ton of things. But the Supreme Court here has something brand new to say. The majority opinion in Hammer v. Dagenhart says that the Commerce Clause does not give Congress the power to regulate working conditions. They say that's not interstate commerce. You can regulate, <laughs> according to the majority opinion, you can regulate or prohibit the sale of certain goods. Remember, at this time, the nation is, you know, really obsessed with prohibiting the sale of liquor, for example, or lottery tickets. But Congress can't regulate the manufacture of the goods or the conditions in which the goods are manufactured. Right. You know, this is something that the modern court would buy. Yes, absolutely. You see this kind of formalistic, like ticky tack, this is in the yes category, this is in the no category kind of thinking. Yeah. So Justice Holmes, the great dissenter, again dissents here, pointing out that this is a distinction without a difference. You know, the Constitution says that Congress can regulate interstate commerce. And of course, that includes the manufacturing of the goods sold in interstate commerce. 
he further points out like this hypocrisy of holding that Congress can prohibit the sale of some goods that it deems evil, but not dangerous and damaging working conditions in the production of goods, you know? And he says, quote, if there is any matter upon which civilized countries have agreed, it is the evil of premature and excessive child labor, end quote. Hmm. So, you know, there's some good language in there and really calling out the formalism without really any substance or logic behind it. Right. All right. Next case. And by the way, there are like probably like 20, 30 cases yes. that we could have covered. Yes. <laughs> yes. We're just picking some good ones for you. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. <laughs> we're just, this is all highlight reel. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, the B-sides are brutal, too, but this is the good stuff. This is the stuff you need to know. <laughs> all right. 1923. Adkins v. Children's Hospital. In 1918, Congress passed a law setting a minimum wage for women and children in Washington, D.C. Now, I know you might see that a children's hospital is a party here and think, oh, no, that poor children's hospital. But in this case, the children's hospital sued so that they didn't have to pay women a minimum wage. (laughs) So uh, (laughs) they're getting those kids healthy so that they can work. Do no harm does not extend to hospital administrators. (laughs) So the court strikes this law down, the minimum wage for women and children, saying that it interfered with that freedom of contract that the court Mm. created in Lochner. And to give you a sense of the level that they were operating on here, one of the primary arguments made was that if there can be minimum wage laws, there could be maximum wage laws, too. They're They're sort of like saying it's like a slippery slope. And I was like, not a bad idea, baby. Let's <laughs> <Yeah>. do it. <laughs> and they also make the argument that following the passage of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote, women were no longer really in need of additional protection under the law. The court discussed the differences in how the law treats men and women, saying, quote, it is not unreasonable to say that these differences have now come almost, if not quite, to the vanishing point. Again, it is 1923. (laughs) Uh Phenomenal example of how readily reactionaries will claim that discrimination is behind us. Mm -hmm. This is literally the court being like discrimination against women. That's pretty much a solved problem in 1923. When did they get suffrage? 1920. Right. Like it just happened. (laughs) (laughs) Three years later, they're like, we did it. You guys have been able to vote for three years. Um, one presidential election. One president. <laughs> <laughs> and remember, we're just talking about white women, right? Like, yeah. Yes. yeah. Not even yeah. Oh, my God. Right. Oh, my God. God, the bar is unbelievably low to them. <laughs> <laughs> so we also want to talk about towards the end of the Lochner era, there's a pretty good case. Carter v. Carter Cole. Which is, if that name sounds weird, it's because it's a shareholder suing his own company for complying with federal law. So the way this law worked, it it regulated the production of bituminous coal. And it basically regulated the entire industry, like minimum wage, working hours, conditions, things like that, under Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce because coal goes everywhere, right? It gets exported out of state. It's fuel. So the way the law was enforced is that it was actually voluntary. But if you didn't comply, you had to pay your normal taxes. Whereas if you did comply, you got a tax rebate. 
So it sort of functioned as like a tax on non-compliance. Yeah, really cracking down on the coal industry. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so Carter Cole was like, all right, now let's comply with the law. They're like, all right, let's pay the tax. Right. <laughs> we won't do the minimum wages. We won't do any of that stuff. We're just going to pay our, our excise tax, essentially, under this. And so their shareholder sued them to be like, you, you cannot pay this. And this law is unconstitutional. And the Supreme Court was like, yep, yep, it is. And that's because the production of coal is not interstate commerce. Oh, my gosh. Manufacturing isn't either just because. <laughs> because that can't be right. Right. You produce it in one state. Right. Uh, <laughs> and then it goes in other states later. So And that's commerce. <laughs> that's commerce. Right. Commerce is, is only the split second in which the train the carrying the coal crosses state lines. That's right. Everything yes. else uh-huh. is not commerce. So right. they literally say at one point that manufacturing and other production can't be interstate commerce because if it was, Congress would just have lots of power. Uh, that can't be right. <laughs> this is the quote. Uh, the, it's quoting another case, but they block quote it. So the result would be that Congress would be invested to the exclusion of the states with the power to regulate not only manufacturers, but also agriculture, horticulture, stock raising, domestic fisheries, mining, in short, every branch of human industry. Whoa. Wow. It's crazy to think that the federal government would have a large amount of power. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, it's incredible. Is, they, for, is there one of them that does not contemplate more or less clearly an interstate or foreign market? Does not the wheat grower of the Northwest and the cotton planter of the South plant, cultivate, and harvest this crop with an eye on the prices at Liverpool, New York, and Chicago? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. <No>. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. And that's interstate commerce. <laughs> that's interstate commerce, buddy. That's, that's what you're describing. Yeah. But but they say, like, it follows inevitably that Congress could regulate all these things. And that can't be right. That literally. Right. Interests which in their nature are and must be local. That's what they, they must be local. If we use a rational explanation of what interstate commerce is, that would end with an outcome that I don't like. <laughs> right. That's <laughs> yes. exactly yes. right. That's exactly right. That is this opinion. That is this opinion. Note the lack of a legal argument here, right? Or a legal theory. It's just that if this were true, if Congress could regulate these things, well, we wouldn't like it. Yeah, we wouldn't like it. So that's the decision. That's the holding in the case. That is also what conservatives are doing with the Commerce Clause, right? Exactly. Yes. Yes. The Commerce Clause jurisprudence has like not gotten better. Like sometimes you'll look at the jurisprudence from 100 years ago and you're like, well, they sort of clarified this, at least. Mm-hmm. Like, they righted this wrong, at least in some way. You look at this shit and you're like, this is the same. Yes. This is the same exact logical fallacy <laughs> that is being made a hundred years later. Exactly. There's a line in this that, like, sounds like it could come right out of, like, a libertarian political convention or CPAC or whatever today. They say, one who does a thing in order to avoid a monetary penalty does not agree. He yields to compulsion Precisely the same as though he did so to avoid a term in jail. Paying a penalty is the same as being jailed, which has <laughs> right. real taxation is slavery yes. vibes, yes. which yeah, is like yeah. a big part of modern conservative ideology. Absolutely. Like, right. It's all here. Yeah. It's, it's incredible to read and be like, this is, 
Yeah. Right. Uh, conservatives have like that libertarian strain where everything the government does, they'll be like, this is, you know, the government is forcing you at the point of the gun. Right. Except for when the government actually points guns at people, which it does support. <laughs> right. Uh, right. That's, yeah. That's yes. so totally down for. Yeah. So turning to the end of the Lochner era, how does this trend in substantive due process and the freedom of contract, how does it eventually come to a close? So this pattern of invalidating worker and consumer protections at the Supreme Court, it did continue through the Great Depression and into the 1930s and the beginning of the New Deal. But in response to this judicial activism, President Roosevelt, this is FDR, proposed changing the number of Supreme Court justices, basically threatened to pack the court so that the four, um, sometimes five more conservative anti-New Deal justices wouldn't have so much power in their votes on cases. And so that brings us to the case that is said to mark the end of the Lochner era. That's West Coast Hotel versus Parrish. And at issue in West Coast Hotel was a minimum wage law, just like the one in Adkins that Peter talked about, because it established a minimum wage for women. But remember, in Adkins, that was a federal law. It was it covered D.C. And this time it's a state law establishing a minimum wage for women in the state of Washington. So important to note that literally less than a year before West Coast Hotel, the Supreme Court had upheld Adkins and struck down a nearly identical minimum wage law in a case called Moorhead. But the difference now was that public opinion was overwhelmingly clearly in favor of New Deal legislation. And FDR, like I said, had threatened the Supreme Court with court packing. So one justice, Justice Owen Roberts, switched his vote from how he had voted in Moorhead, this time making a five-person majority to overrule Adkins and upholding the minimum wage law. So this is sometimes called the switch in time that saved nine because FDR did not end up packing the court, right? And the Supreme Court still has nine justices. So that is the end of the Lochner era. Yeah. And all it took to wind this back was the greatest depression in this country's history (laughs) and the desire of the population to rise out of the poverty that was created uh, by the excess of the Gilded Age and the Roaring Twenties. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So let's move into the modern era and how we uh, believe that the current court is sort of rebuilding Lochner in different ways. You know, the Lochner era is really about the court interfering with the establishment of labor rights at a time when people were passing legislation that recognized the need for labor protection, the court was stepping in and striking it down for various reasons, whether it was freedom of contract or congressional commerce power, whatever. We now live in an era nearly 100 years since the passage of the country's most meaningful labor legislation. And conservatives have long been interested in recreating the laissez-faire status quo, That existed in the early 1900s, albeit in some more palatable form, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you don't want the Upton Sinclair aesthetics. You just want the freedom of contract. Right, right. Right. And so the question has become how to end run around existing labor rights like those enshrined in the National Labor Relations Act. One way is by allowing for employers to exempt themselves from labor protections through arbitration agreements. The Supreme Court has held that employers can force employees to waive their rights to a class action lawsuit by making them sign arbitration agreements. 
which we talked about in our Epic Systems v. Lewis episode, maybe the most direct parallel between the modern court's jurisprudence and Lochner itself is the use of the Bill of Rights to interfere with union activities. Yeah. We've covered Janus, where the court held that workers had a First Amendment right not to pay public union fees, and Cedar Point Nursery v. Hasid, where it held that union organizers were violating the Fifth Amendment by walking onto company property, right? Right. right? Yeah. You can really see the parallels between some of these cases and the rhetoric of the Lochner era because the court in both cases is disingenuously championing the rights of labor itself in a way that benefits management and ultimately undermines labor's power on the whole. Right. In the Lochner era, they would talk about freedom of workers to like sign whatever contract they choose, right? For example, in Adkins about the minimum wage for women, a woman who was like an elevator operator was one of the plaintiffs there, one of the people who brought the case claiming that Congress was interfering with her ability to make a living. The scab of all scabs. Right, <laughs> right. And you can see in the modern era, they talk about the, you know, the rights of workers to free speech and free association. All of its bad faith, of course, uh, and the people bringing these lawsuits are expressly operating in the interests of anti-union organizations and companies. But the sort of rhetoric of, well, you know, we are championing the rights of the workers. Mm -hmm. uh, that has sort of stayed steady, right? And that's sort of a direct through line from Lochner right. to now. And you also see the trend of the Lochner era or the, the vibes of the Lochner era in cases like Citizens United, right? So mm -hmm. the modern day court is all too ready to sort of enhance corporate interests and business owners' power, you know, during the Lochner era, that was business owners' power in relation to their employees. Here in the modern era, that's sort of corporate power in relation to national politics, right? Elections, right, right. you know, the so-called freedom of speech for a corporation versus an individual voter. That's right. Yeah. Also, it's worth talking for a minute about what happened after the Lochner era, right? Which is yes. the New Deal, you know, famously, which remade the American economy and our political economy. And one of the big fundamental changes in the structure of American government was the creation of the administrative state, which is where Congress delegates some of its lawmaking power to the executive branch you know, via agencies who can then issue regulations that have the force of law. And this is how most of commerce is regulated on a day-to-day -day basis. Right. You know, whether it's the EPA or the FCC or however many agencies there are, like most of them regulate commerce in one way or another. They regulate your working conditions like in OSHA. They regulate what polluters can and can't do and the emissions on cars that are produced in America or, or driven on our roads. And so what you see in, from the conservatives is an effort to undo this, to undo the New Deal, to unmake the administrative state and, again, return us to a status quo ante, right, before – the Great Depression of the Gilded Age and all the excesses that followed it. Right. And so the legal theory that they use to pursue this is called the non-delegation doctrine, which is a totally bogus and like ahistorical idea that the Constitution forbids 
Congress from delegating its powers to the executive in this way. And there are soft and hard versions of the non-delegation doctrine. And there's, you know, an even softer version called the major questions doctrine, which we talked about recently on on OSHA, yeah. OSHA, the vaccine mandate case, which says on major questions, the court uh, isn't going to really defer to agencies on whether or not Congress mm-hmm. has delegated them certain powers. So this is something that, like, when I was in law school, was largely discredited. Its big thesis statement was made in this case called Schechter Poultry, which is a case that, again, is like was frowned upon when I was in law school, but was cited with approval by Justice Gorsuch in the vaccine mandate case when he was explaining how uh, the non-delegation doctrine works and how he thinks it applies, right? So it's very possible in the coming years we're going to see this used more and more aggressively by the conservative Supreme Court to undo environmental regulations, to undo business safety standards, and to ultimately undo much of the New Deal. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, the Supreme Court isn't operating uh, in a vacuum here by itself, right? Like the Republican Party is doing all it can as well with like state level anti-union legislation, like the right to work right. laws uh, and other anti-labor efforts. So it's something that's a coordinated political project and the court is a big piece of it. It's not the only piece, though. No, it's it's the backstop, right? I mean, yeah, it's interesting, you know, Re, you're, you're mentioning Citizens United because the fact that wealth and power is so concentrated in a handful of companies these days has allowed them to invest in like anti-union infrastructure, mm-hmm. you know, anti-union consulting groups where if your workplace tries to organize, they will bring in consultants to like talk to the employees about why unions are bad and might actually uh, result in you making less money and all sorts of other things that are just, you know, (laughs) in my mind, there's no world where they're not violations of the National Labor Relations Act for trying to suppress union activity. Um, But here we are. And in the event that any of these efforts, like this union consulting gigs, state level right to work shit, where that falls through, the Supreme Court is there to be that backstop Mm -hmm. and prevent unions from gaining any power. I should really say gaining a foothold because I think we're down to something like 6% private sector union membership across the country, which is unbelievably low. So yeah, I mean, I I think it's right that there's just this sort of tapestry of anti-labor infrastructure that runs from corporations to state level Republican parties to the Supreme Court. And you can just see all of these links between the language used both politically and in the jurisprudence now and what the court said back in the Lochner era when it was defending the most fucking like obviously disgusting labor practices that you've ever heard of in your life. Right. You know, I, I have a big picture thought about where the right wing is going because we've been sort of talking as if conservatives are inherently or at least primarily anti-labor. But in recent years, there's been a strain of anti-corporatism taking hold in reactionary thought. And that has led to some people arguing that, like, populist pro-worker interests will find a home on the right. But I think that misconstrues the nature of the reaction. 
what we're seeing is not an alignment with labor. It's an alignment against big tech and other large companies that conservatives view as like giving in to woke culture or whatever ungodly stupid shit they believe. Right. So you might see like temporary allegiances between the right and workers or more likely between the right and certain segments of workers, right? Like you see now with the trucker convoy. But the basic idea that labor protections interfere with the operation of the free market is still the dominant strain of thought on the right today. Uh, That's baked into Republican orthodoxy. And that's why even as there are pushes against the power of big tech from the right, for example, we will likely continue to see anti-labor jurisprudence from the court. Right. Next week, Merrill v. Milligan, case from just last month, when the court held that Alabama can't do anything about its racist voter maps because it's too close to the election. Okay, nothing to be done. Yeah, The only thing to be done is to hold an election using the racist voter maps. Sorry, guys, there's no time. You have to do the racist election. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Ugh. (laughs) (laughs) we're not wanting for content folks (laughs) follow us on twitter at five four pod thanks for subscribing we love y'all yeah we'll see you next week bye-bye bye Bye. five to four is presented by prologue projects this episode was produced by rachel ward with editorial support from leon nafok and andrew parsons our production manager is persia verlin our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY, and our theme song is by Spatial Relations. Mm-hmm.